0: Hello, Why We Do What We Do crew, this is Abraham here, and I am excited to let you know that this Friday, May 1st, at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, in celebration of our three-year anniversary, we are doing a live stream event. Anybody who would like to may join us there. We will be able to interact with you via the chat. Some people may be invited to even join us as part of the episode. And uh, more details about that can be found at our website, as well as our Facebook page, our Twitter account, Instagram. We will be streaming to Facebook Live and YouTube and Twitch, as well as maybe a couple of other platforms. But we are excited to see you there, and we are so happy to be able to celebrate our third anniversary with you. So thank you for helping us make this happen, and we will see you at the live stream event on Friday. You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I will be your host, Abraham. And I'm Shane. And so today we have what seems like a lot of content may end up being a multi-part episode. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, we're going to play it by ear. It's fine. Now, we are recording this at the time of, I don't know if it's the height of the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic, but it's certainly on an accelerated trajectory (laughs) right now.
1: Yeah, it is a current peak. Like, it is the peak of the situation that
0: we're in at the moment. And as many of you will maybe know, or uh, depending on how things go, by the time this is released may remember, the world had transitioned to an online presence, at least here in the United States. And so pretty much everybody was using Zoom video conferencing or other forms of video conferencing. They were spending all their time on social media looking at the explosion of memes that happened in the fallout of this shelter in place, lockdown stay home, whatever campaign is relevant for you. People are online a lot.
1: Yes, there is like you mentioned a meme explosion. There are two camps right now that I can safely say exist. One is the Tiger King meme camp and the other one is this (laughs) coronavirus meme camp. So it is like if there were a stock market for memes, you would invest in those two. Like you would be a billionaire
0: if you had invested (laughs) in those (laughs) two. Yeah. So anyway, there is this online forum where people are Because they can't hang out with one another, they're hanging out with one another virtually. And sometimes that is via videos. They can see each other. Sometimes that is via phone. I definitely have been making more phone calls in the last month than I had in my, like, the several years preceding all put together. And then there's also people who just sort of talk to each other on by posting on people's Facebook pages, by tweeting, by responding to things that people posted, that sort of thing. And that whole maelstrom of online activity is called social media.
1: Yes. So Abraham and I have the fortunate honor to be part of a generation that remembers a time before social media existed and lives in a current age of social media, which is a unique space to be in. We could do a whole episode on the generation that kind of like knew what it was like before and after. I remember when uh, LiveJournal first came out and everybody was big on that and Friendster and MySpace. And like those were the big... The big things. Yeah. And today it's, you know, it's one of the greatest, but one of the worst things that's ever been created as far as humankind goes. It definitely has pros and
0: cons, to say the least. Right. And I mean, people use this to creep on one another, their classmates or their neighbors or their coworkers. There is its vitriolic use in contemporary politics. It can also bring a lot of people together, help create a safe place for people to even. I guess, organize in a way that would allow them to have that organization without fear of reprisal from their governing body, potentially. And it has this vice aspect, and it has potentially this good aspect that can be used. Essentially, there's this endless list of ways it could be used because it's so flexible. And so then the question becomes, where does it cross the line of use from just sort of casual interaction to obsession, distraction, and what you might even ultimately call addiction?
1: Right. And that's going to be kind of the primary focus of what we talk about today. Like, one of the questions that we do answer is, like, what is this idea of social media addiction specifically? And we're going to kind of talk about that. But we're also going to ask the question of whether there are certain types of people, like, say, personality wise, or maybe people who are kind of like predisposed to or more prone to, I guess is the word, to becoming more addicted to something like social media.
0: Yeah. And then how does this compare to what we normally understand psychologically speaking and otherwise? But what is addiction? And when we look at what you might think of more as addiction with other substance abuse and things like that, or other habits that are addictive, and then how it is different from those other habits as well, and whether there can be sort of this healthy balance. You know, I've heard people say everything in moderation, and I think there may be some things you should never do, and that doing it even a little bit is not okay.
1: Yeah, like this is kind of a a little bit glib, but I would say, you know, maybe meth is not something that is... Okay, in moderation probably doesn't work that well. Yeah. So, right. You know, we're going to kind of talk about this a little bit differently than that, because it is a little bit different than, say, like a really harsh drug addiction. But we're going to kind of draw some parallels and kind of talk about what it looks like, how it's diagnosed, how it's treated and kind of really dig into what it means to have. Or maybe if you are somebody who um, has experienced this, what could be considered social media addiction?
0: I think a useful way to organize this conversation would be sort of how different sources have described elements of social media addiction and what that means. So we'll have some statistics that they've provided as well as some definitions and even a a cute little questionnaire, a diagnostic questionnaire that we'll get to in a moment. Yeah. All right, before we continue, just want to let everyone know that we will be discussing addiction. And so we do talk about drugs and the use of drugs And so just want to warn everyone before we jump into that conversation that we will be talking about that at various points. So if that's a topic that is of concern, you may want to skip that part of the episode or skip this one altogether. So let's start with the source, The Chronicle, which many people, of course, have heard of. And according to The Chronicle, of course, many people use social media around the world. But how many people use social media? Well, according to them, about 86%. I didn't set that up very well. I was hoping to do the like, so many people use social media.
1: So many people.
0: Yeah. (laughs) How many people use it? 86% of people around the world use it daily, according to this source. 20% of adults use it for at least five hours a day, which is so much. And then since 2014, they're describing that Instagram's user base has increased by 100 million users per year. I have heard people say that they've sort of moved away from. Things like Twitter and Facebook toward Instagram, but then of course TikTok blew up really fast, and I think there's even some more that are coming on on the scene now that they'd sort of flame up like a giant explosion and users.
1: Yeah. I mean, you'll see some kind of new platform will show up and then sometimes it'll take, and sometimes it doesn't. I remember vine picked up for a little bit really quickly. It blew up real. Yeah. It, it was huge for like a year. And then it went away when Instagram added video. And then you had, now you have TikTok, which is a little bit different. So, yeah, I mean, you'll see, especially in this day and age, like there's kind of like these flashes in the pan that, that will show up, but some kind of stick. Instagram seems to be one that's stuck for a little while. Facebook is one that's kind of stuck around. Twitter is one that's stuck around. So you'll see those are kind of like the big three with TikTok creeping up there.
0: Yeah, and this is just on, on those flash in the pan things. I feel like we have such a short memory for these because it's like almost nobody even remembers that that happened. And when we first started this podcast fidget spinners were all the rage everyone had them you could get there were just there were so many and I said at the time I think this is going to be over in a year and it was a little longer than a year but I like do we really see like everyone carrying a fidget spinners anymore like there are some but not nearly to the extent it was it was like a plague of fidget spinners which is maybe not an appropriate term to use given what's going on right now there was a lot <laughs> of vision spinners, let's put it there that There were
1: many. There were many. I mean, it's like when we were kids. Do you remember hacky sacks? Like everybody had hacky sacks for a little bit and pogs?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, pogs. <laughs>
1: you know, so when you start talking about this, Paradigm Malibu, which is another site that we looked at here, they referenced that teens check their phones about 150 times per day, which when you put it like that, sounds like quite a bit. That's quite a few times to look at your phone.
0: Yeah, I'm actually going to see how many I looked at mine. It looks like I'm averaging a little over 100 myself, although I don't know exactly how to interpret that. What does that mean?
1: Yeah, I mean, that doesn't talk about quality or anything like that. And really, you know, one of the questions that we have to ask within that is, is it because, you know, that, that high number, 150, which, you know, we're on average within that. Is it because there's maybe fewer competing responsibilities like a day job like maybe most adults do? Maybe most adults check it less because they're working more. Maybe there's some other things going on.
0: That are kind of contributing to that. We don't really know that yet. And also, I'm kind of curious what counts as like a phone check. Because I will check what time it is, or just to see if I, I'll just like tap the screen to see if there's been any new messages, things like that. Or if I just lift it up, just because I'm moving it, and then the screen registers as being turned on. Does that count? Yeah. But anyway, point being that you combine this with the fact that you have someone whose brain is developing as a teenager. Their decision-making and habits are developing, and they have not really worked out a good repertoire for how to navigate their own behavior. You sort of have the recipe for, I don't want to say necessarily disaster, but you certainly set them up for the ability to form the social media addiction-like thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, these are formative years, so it's very possible that something could get shaped up pretty quickly. All right,
0: Shane, what attracts us to social media anyway?
1: Oh, well, in the day and age of technology, one thing that you'll hear a lot when like, you're designing websites or, or anything like that is user interfaces. And most social media is designed to be pretty easy to navigate. It's pretty easy to kind of set up and run, but it's also free. So you've got this situation where it's like there's this cool platform where there's not really a lot of restrictions, and it's really easy
0: to use. And we'll talk about this more later, but... I don't know if anybody really saw that one of the most prolific technology or sectors of technology development was going to be in communications more generally. You know, when the internet came on, there was a lot of people who were skeptical that it was going to be very useful. When cell phones were coming around, no one ever thought that cell phones would be capable of doing a tenth of the things they're capable of doing now. Right, right. And yeah, I think honestly, the fact that we're social creatures that we have a lot of sort of interaction-seeking behaviors, I think betting on communication is pretty safe. And so essentially with these social media platforms, no matter how you interact with it, you're almost always going to get some kind of immediate reward from doing so. You don't have to wait for anything because there's always people on it. And because even if the people don't necessarily immediately reward your interaction with that platform, the platform will for you. And so it sort of serves as an intermediary to make sure that you never go a second without being able to contact some level of success. And
1: to add to that, like when people do interact with you, you've got this unlimited type of social currency that exists, right? So the more likes that I get, the more responses that I get, the more comments that I get, the more shares that happen on my post, whatever that might be, there's always more of it. There's an unlimited resource for it as long as a social media platform exists. And while we can't just print more money, We can kind of set up a situation where maybe likes are more available.
0: And sometimes, and I think calling this, this like digital currency, that's not Bitcoin, but you know, this form of currency in terms of social currency is, is right on is uh, with what's going on here because, and as you pointed out, this can translate to real money, you know, real fame, real notoriety. This can have you have access to things you wouldn't otherwise have access to and get you on a momentum of even more money and fame and notoriety and that sort of thing so and kind of anybody can do that if they can use a platform in a savvy way like you don't have to know the right people this one's this is pretty democratic in that way if you will and the other thing too is with our phones being available to us and us being essentially in a place where we are never without connection to the internet the accessibility of this is unmatched like anybody can use this space
1: Yeah, I mean, again, going back to this idea, you know, we we are the age where we remember dial up and how hard it was to get on the internet, and then when somebody would pick up the phone, we lost internet, and it was like, "Come on!" (laughs) You know, here we're in this space where it's like it's in our pockets, like we have these supercomputers in our pockets that allow us to access this. I don't think that's either a good or bad thing. I think what I what I would say here is that it sets the occasion for things like social media to be successful. It allows for things like social media and even for people to work longer hours than they should. It allows for those types of, it does occasion that type of behavior.
0: Right. Now, another thing is, and going back to this idea of that sort of immediate reward, because there are so many people using it, one of the ways that you can sort of predict what will be a successful social media platform or not is how popular it gets and how quickly. And maybe not necessarily how quickly, but definitely how popular it gets. And basically because the more people that are using that platform, the more valuable that platform is. And because the whole purpose is to communicate with as many people as possible. So if I were to sell you the super fancy, amazing, crazy, high tech, Tony Stark phone, but it couldn't connect to any networks and you couldn't actually use it to communicate with anybody, like it might be cool to show off, but you wouldn't really engage with it very much. So these, these social media platforms, what they do so well is that when they become accessible enough to enough people, then the more people that join it, the more people will join it. So it's the, the snowball effect. And it's similar to this idea of sort of the hopping on the bandwagon. It's just that it's it continues to increase in value the more participation that there is.
1: You'll kind of see this a little bit. Computerworld.com talks about this as the network effect, where you'll see a network becomes more valuable as more people join it. Right. So and you'll see like within that though, you'll see something like intermittent information where seeing a number of likes, a number of comments, notifications, it could be backed up by pretty much anything that's going on. Like it could be backed up by whatever you're posting. It could be backed up with, you know, some kind of maybe monetary value, right? You know, later we'll talk about something like algorithms and stuff that kind of boosts your posts, but this idea that like the more likes that you get, that's already positively reinforcing. It's pushing up, you know, your your post, making it so that you have more likes, more exposure. You know, we had um on our Instagram we post stuff all the time. And one of the posts that we got the most likes on was a meme that somebody else had created that we credited. We were like, hey, here's this funny thing. And we've gotten more likes on that post than anything that we've created on our own, which is kind of ridiculous. But that was super reinforcing. I mean, we shared it and we talked about it within our crew. We were like, look at this. This is really, really interesting. So it's just funny how that kind of turns into, you know, something that is generally a neutral notification that doesn't really mean anything. A like doesn't really mean anything. It means somebody double tapped your photo becomes something a little bit more and then it becomes like this weird cycle of reinforcement and and checking your phone and and just kind of like it
0: spirals a little bit you can't be the life of the party if you don't join the party so <laughs> you just gotta has <laughs> gotta hop on and and ride along with everybody on their party boat Virtual party about it, not encouraging people <laughs> to violate physical distancing <laughs> recommendations. But yes. Anyway, so I talked about this fact that there is essentially no time at which you can't be successful, but that's not necessarily true. And also, there are various levels of what functions as a successful outcome. So, having someone respond to you, having someone like something that you have done, having it be retweeted, those might have different types of values. And you're not always going to get the thing that's the most valuable to you every time that you interact. With that platform, and there's actually an interesting phenomenon here that I'm going to compare to gambling, because you think when you go gambling, you don't win money every time, right? If you did, people would do it more. But one of the things that establishes that habit, so that it maintains for a very long time until people are betting their houses and doing crazy stuff like that, betting their mortgages, and and they feel like they're out of control with their their impulsiveness and gambling, is that they don't win very much every time. They will get some amount. They'll get sometimes they'll get some pretty big payoffs, and then most of the time, if they get anything at all, it'll be fairly small. But and that's exactly the same overlay as what's happening with social media is like sometimes you get little payoffs here and there, and sometimes you get really big ones. But what we know from the research is that those sporadic or periodic big payoffs will maintain a habit stronger than anything else that you can create oh absolutely
1: and it's a problem right because then you'll see people posting and posting and posting and then it becomes like this bigger larger challenge that people have to kind of overcome right now one thing too to consider when we start talking about social media is that there are algorithms that are built into these programs into these platforms right and so every day as they gather new information and they gather new data they become smarter and smarter so it's very much so a very scary ai type of situation but what ends up happening is content is being further curated and thus more addictive. So basically what's happening is like, you know, an algorithm on your profile, let's say that you have like an Instagram profile, you like certain photos. So you like this photo, this photo, this photo, and they kind of have a common theme or maybe they have the same kind of hashtag. And so then what's gonna happen is your feed that you see is gonna produce the same types of photos or similar enough photos or similar enough profiles that it kind of maintains that behavior of attending to those particular like the features the salient features of those photos or whatever it is about that profile and every social media platform has something like that you know if you're on twitter and you're liking certain politicians and liking their and retweeting their you know sound bites and doing all that you're going to start getting more from that group or similar content like almost like you end up in an echo chamber and it's like this really bizarre kind of reinforcement cycle that you get stuck in
0: all right now we've been talking so far about what social media is, how the internet works, how (laughs) different, you know, a lot of this is (laughs) going to be somewhat known. Maybe some of this will be new information, but the whole point of this discussion is to build up to what social media addiction is. So Shane, what is the diagnostic criteria for someone to be officially called by a psychologist an addict of social media?
1: Ah, so that's kind of the big mystery here. There is not currently a diagnostic criteria for social media addiction in the DSM-5. What? I know. There's no standard evaluation. There's nothing really there that says this is what social media addiction is. But scales that are out there, anytime they kind of talk about that, they seem to consider the following bits of information as far as how this might be a problem for somebody who is suffering from it. And the first one is time spent. Time spent. People who are generally addicted to anything tend to spend a lot of time engaged with what that is. That is one big criteria that they look at for addiction in general.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Of course, one thing that you'll look for in as a sign that it has become addictive, which is to say it is interfering with your life, is that it's interfering with your life. <laughs> and specifically that you'll see damage to normal routines and potentially damage to what was once considered a valuable relationship.
1: That's a pretty common thread across most diagnostic criteria, is that it does interrupt some kind of routine that you're engaged in. Right. A third criteria that they might consider as part of these skills is whether the person that is maybe suffering from this engages in some kind of withdrawal behavior when they're denied access. Like, So maybe there's some kind of problematic event that occurs that removes them from accessing that or maybe they when they do lose access like if i can't get onto my phone is there going to be a problem and that's that's something that you might see as part of the scales that they look at when they start evaluating this
0: so can we call this addiction i don't know you know there's it's hard to say because of how different this does seem to be from a lot of other forms of addiction that have been described i just heard recently they're considering adding video game addiction so basically any pattern of behavior where you see these sort of criteria that we've just described an enormous proportion of your time is being spent there. It is disruptive to other routines and relationships which you might expect if you're spending a lot of time there and that you get this reactivity to having that taken away that could be applied to just a lot of different things that are really firmly established habits for somebody and so whether we call this addiction is just tough like A name is just a name, like those are just words that happen, but they can actually carry really important real world effects. And calling something addiction might free up something like requirements or money for treatment. And so the words we choose to use here are important. We can't just blow those off, you know. So just something to consider. We don't know if this crosses the line, but we're going to spend the rest of this discussion talking a lot more about the kind of habits that show up around this thing called social media and then how this compares to those other addictions.
1: To kind of further elaborate on on this idea of what it's like to be obsessed with something like social media, The Guardian is another site that we looked at and it, it kind of takes into account this idea of abnormalities. You know, social media use abnormalities might be something like using in the middle of the night, blindly offering deeply personal opinions to unknown audiences. Those two things are are just examples, but there's plenty of other ones like maybe people are skipping work to spend more time on it too you'll see that but i you know using it in the middle of the night i think it depends on is it disrupting your sleep is it something that you are waking up at like 2 a.m just to get a post out like what like what, what are you doing
0: with that you know so those are some abnormalities that are mentioned as part of this there's also a consideration regarding what is considered abnormal or normal that depends on sort of what the cultural the culture that you belong to is doing with that sort of thing. So it might not be abnormal if everybody does it. Like that's just the expectation as you wake up at 2am to like check a post or to post something. I'm not saying that that's what happens, but meeting that criteria for whether we call it addiction does depend a little bit on how we're saying that it deviates from what we consider quote unquote normal based on what everyone else in that culture is, is kind of doing or how other people are using that platform. And another thing is that we start to get used to these patterns of behavior and not even necessarily think or detect that it's causing harm. And I think if you were to go back 15, 20 years to before cell phones were capable of what they were doing now, if we saw people looking at their phone, just looking at it, pulling it out of their pocket, checking it, interacting with it, touching it, even remotely approaching the frequency of the way that they do now. Then that would look very strange to people of 2005, you know, that just wasn't something <laughs> people did. There wasn't, I mean, I'm, in 2005, people were still using like Palm Pilots to play games. <laughs> yeah, and sidekicks. And, and and sidekicks, yeah, to to do this sort of thing. So you definitely saw it emerging at that time, but like the phones just weren't capable of doing what they're capable of doing now. So you still wouldn't see that level of an interaction and now we don't see that and think necessarily that that's weird or out of place. So that's just thinking about this, how, the, how that fits into what people are doing in sort of the zeitgeist.
1: Yeah. And to kind of like maybe shine a little bit of more light on this too, we're going to use a 2016 reference. So it's more current because 2005 was a very strange year. So <laughs> <laughs> when you think about it, I think I just graduated high school the year before. So that was an event. So in 2016, it was a pretty volatile year to be online, given things like the election that was going on and kind of everything that happened with the United States election and really polarized opinions. And basically what you saw on social media was it was weaponized. It was weaponized towards, you know, pushing a certain political agenda into place. It was used as a political tool. And there's whether you debate it or not, you can go look at the Mueller report. There was some stuff out there that's not getting political, just trying to get the facts. But you'll see that during those times, and you can see it right now if you spend a little bit of time on Facebook, it is people are aggressively using social media to push certain thoughts, certain agendas. I mean, you'll see a lot of pseudoscience gets pushed out through this, and it's it's weaponized in a very strange way.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think just to spend a, a moment on that, because I think it's useful to point out, a lot of people have said, well, how could they actually... Influence real world events like election, doing something like a, a campaign on social media. And I think that it's reasonable to be skeptical of that kind of thing. And essentially, just to break it down, what ended up happening was there were people going online, targeting vulnerable or people who were likely to be susceptible to this, which is a, a lot. And essentially, either trying to, if they thought that they could be pushed in a, per, in a particular direction, then trying to feed them a bunch of misinformation to push them in that direction if they thought they couldn't be pushed in that direction, then instead it was just don't vote. That was like the huge campaign. Like your vote doesn't matter. There's the whole rhetoric of, you know, one vote's not going to change the outcome of an election, so it doesn't matter. And so they would really try and dissuade people from even participating in that election. And that's also true with the coronavirus going around, is you have people with their own agenda who have gotten much better at manipulating people by trying to exploit where their biases are and it's like they don't even care whether they're right or you're right or anything they want you to act a particular way and they're going to figure out what your bias is and they're going to pull on that thread as hard as they can to get you to do one thing or another and people don't even they can't catch that's happening and the, the this is only made available on these platforms for the most part you know they're not running these ad campaigns through the through most major television networks this is only available online. And so if you are using this habitually to the point where that makes up 20% of your day, you know, then you are highly uh, of your waking hours, you know, even more, if it's just considering your waking hours, then that's, you are going to be much more susceptible to those kind of attacks.
1: That's kind of a, another route that we're getting at here. When we start talking about this idea of addiction is, is like part of, Being on that platform, as much as people who are quote unquote, addicted to this, as they might be like, they are getting a lot of information. That's unverified, untrue weaponized. Like you want to say, like, however you want to look at it, but on top of people posting misinformation, you've also got algorithms that are, if you're interacting with that misinformation, the more information is going to come to you. And so now this person who is spending all this time on this platform. Is getting exposed to all this stuff and it is going to influence their behavior on some level simply because now they've they're setting these like rules right this idea of like oh this is true of this oh you know in new york they're stealing masks and they're selling them which is ridiculous so like that type of stuff though influences behavior and that's why exposure to this on this level can be even more hazardous
0: Right, and so the important thing, I think, just to follow up on what you were saying with those algorithms, is that they find the thing that you're most likely to interact with, and they use that as your reward. So they're monitoring what you do online. I mean, they, meaning the algorithms, essentially. Not (laughs) not not the deep state. Exactly. (laughs) There's (laughs) too many people for that to even be remotely realistic, but... These algorithms essentially just track the things that you do and then the th- where you spend the most time, where you spend the most clicks, where you spend the most likes, whatever. It's gonna aggregate that into feeding you content that works as a reward to keep you coming back to that platform. And again, it doesn't necessarily always have an agenda, but people can exploit that algorithm to sort of manipulate you in a particular way. It's very easy to see where conspiratorial thinking begins to emerge in some of this. Something I was thinking about is, you know. Part of this whole toilet paper thing that's going on right now, <laughs> uh, there, I think it's very complex. I think there are a lot of variables that are wrapped up inside of why people are buying toilet paper and it's selling out at stores. And I've, I've read a lot of different sources that have had some ideas that make a lot of logical sense and some of them actually have data to back it up. But one of the things that happened definitely was hype about toilet paper. That was maybe not the biggest, maybe not the biggest factor, but it was at least one of them for some people. They had like what they're selling out of toilet paper. I use toilet paper. I need to get down to the store immediately. And so I was thinking that I'm like, I wonder if I were to create like a big thing about how we're running out of floss. If all of a sudden people would start selling out of floss. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that's and that speaks to cultural selection when we get into that. Like, I mean, that's that's a whole topic that we could probably spend a lot of time on. But yeah, I mean, people are influenced by what they're seeing. They're influenced by what is going on in like this kind of mass cultural movement. That's really I a mean, being to me is the biggest contributor.
0: Yeah, we've got a lot more to cover here in terms of some of the the data on on addiction and and whatnot. And I want to make sure we use our time somewhat efficiently since we have. So much to cover. Yeah. But yeah, so according to addictioncenter.org, psychologists estimate that approximately five to 10% of Americans do meet the criteria for social media addiction. And that's sort of modern, like that's up to date information. And this is with respect to people feeling an urge to log into the social media account, as we mentioned before, spending a lot of time on it, and then how it might otherwise impair their sort of normal daily routine and quality of living. So, Shane, we're at that time where I'm going to see if I can diagnose you as a social media addict. <laughs> well, I am ready. Great. All right. So I'm going to ask you six questions to consider to see if you might be at risk for being a social media addict. Okay. All right. So do you spend a lot of time thinking about social media or planning to use social media? I would say no. Okay. Do you feel urges to use social media increasingly? No. Okay. Okay. Do you use social media to forget about personal problems that you have?
1: I'd say every now and again, yeah.
0: Okay. Do you often try to reduce use of social media but fail to be able to do so successfully? I would say no to that one. Okay. Do you become restless or troubled if you are unable to use social media? I would say maybe last year, yeah. This year I've gotten a little bit better about it. Okay. And finally... Do you use social media so much that it has a negative impact on your job or your studies? And for that, I would say no. Okay. You are not at risk. Yes. Essentially, the criteria here is that if three or more of these would be a yes, then you might be at risk. But most of them were no. So, yeah. So those are some of the questions that are set up. Again, this is not an actual formal diagnostic test. Taking Answering these questions yes does not actually mean that you have an addiction. But it might mean like maybe we need to look more closely at this. So maybe consider it a screener and not a diagnostic tool.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely worth asking those questions because they all tend to lend themselves to the idea that like there might be a challenge that you're experiencing that's worth getting help with. Right. My favorite part of this, though, I do have to make a note that Alan, who put together our notes, made a really great point about this, that when you start looking at these questions about social media, do you feel the urge to use social media more and more like those questions? If you fill in the term social media with any of the other more conventional or like more well-known types of addiction that are out there it gets a little bit strange, right? Like it starts to kind of, you see those parallels. Like, do you use Coke to forget about your personal problems? Do you often try to reduce the use of porn without success? Like when you start adding those other things in there, it gets a little bit nefarious. So you can see how this kind of goes down that path.
0: I always personally like playing that game of, if I'm making an argument and I simply swap out the phrase that's sort of the position that I'm taking for the opposite one, would that argument still stand? And if it does, it's a poor argument. (laughs) Yeah. But also thinking about like if you take something where it's like you're trying to decide the relative importance of something and I'm like, okay, let's swap it out for something that we know is important and see how that argument stands. And this isn't this isn't a logical test that passes all of the like scientific merit of burden of proof. But I, I do like using it as a way to challenge myself so that I don't get too comfortable patting myself on the back every time I think I have a good idea you know, is instead. So if it sounds like I have a lot of terrible ideas or I make a lot of invalid points, you have no idea how much has been filtered out. <laughs> it's a problem. <laughs> exactly. But it, uh, this is I'm, tr- I'm trying to I'm trying to better myself. If you will. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think those are those are worthy thought experiments. And when you start, if you're going to use the term addiction in describing social media addiction, it's worth using that thought experiment to compare it to Relatively significant addictions that do exist, that do have evaluations, that do have empirically supported treatments, right? Like if you're going to go so far as to call this an addiction, it's worth looking at it in comparison to real addictions that are out there. Do you spend a lot of time thinking
0: about toilet paper or planning to use toilet paper? (laughs) (laughs) These days, you know? Do you feel the urge to use toilet paper more and more?
1: (laughs) Listen, I'll say this. I'm at the stage right now where I know where to get toilet paper and I don't want to share it with anybody because I'm like, I don't want to have to like deal with having to seek it out. Like I know there's a spot in my town where you can get it and nobody knows where it is.
0: We had a toilet paper dealer for a little bit. Honestly, like we're at a point where toilet paper has become a form of currency and I was really moved actually. And it's funny that this is such a important symbolic gesture given the context that we're in. but this is something that I always really like as an opportunity to reflect on our culture. Someone at work where I work actually had put out several rolls of toilet paper of their own and just put a little sticky note on it and said, if you really need it, then take it. And I was like, that's such an incredibly sweet thing to do. And it's funny that like, that's, that's a thing that somebody would even need to do, but that was actually, so we had done a subscription based toilet paper delivery service for a long time. And of course the most recent one was delayed because There is none to be shipped. But usually what happens is we already have a lot of toilet paper saved up. And the reason being just that, like I hate going to the store to buy toilet paper on regular intervals. So I'm like, I'm just going to have a bunch of it sort of stockpiled. So like I was never hoarding it or anything. It was just like, I wanted to have it available for refill whenever I needed to have it and just having it be constantly delivered, made sure that I always had backup. Well, now that we're not getting those deliveries anymore, I was thinking about, I'm like, all right, what do we need to do to take care of this? Because like other people are like legitimately like getting napkins and Kleenex and paper towels and whatever they have lying around that they can use to like clean themselves. I saw a thing online about people like hooking up a little motor, like a one of those little pumps to pump water, uh-huh. and use hooking okay, it to like a spray nozzle so they could use as their own homemade bidet <laughs> and stuff. And I was like, I honestly, like, at this point, I just want to go out and get toilet paper so I can give it to people who are in that situation where they feel like a desperate need. But anyway, we got way off track on
1: that. No, but I think that's important to highlight how powerful something like a social media platform can be. Like, that speaks to the general population who is accessing this thing, right? Like, so you're not even on social media and you're experiencing some of the fallout of how powerful a social media platform can be and how powerful communication can be because most people who are on social media see all the stuff about toilet paper. They go out and get all the toilet paper and now there's no toilet paper for the people who are, that need it, right? So you can just see in that instance right now, in this moment, how powerful that can be.
0: So this isn't my recommendation for the show, but I'm going to make it just a recommendation. If you do have a lot of extra toilet paper and you know people who need it, like give them a roll or two, like yeah. part ways with it. You'll be fine. They'll be happy. It's just a kind thing to do. Exactly. That's my call to action, if you will. All right, let's move on with what we were talking about here in terms of yes. social media addiction. So important note, obviously, and I was speaking to this about how this is changing our culture, but most people are perfectly fine with social media. They don't need a lot of monitoring. It's sort of like alcohol, honestly. like Most people drink alcohol just fine and don't develop an addiction. But when the use of social media or alcohol starts to impact relationships or hinder your safety, and I've seen this happen recently, people who are walking across the street using their phone without looking, who are checking their Facebook while driving, they're putting themselves and others in harm's way. We actually had mentioned this on our episode that we did about why people do stupid things. And one of them was like when you're on social media walking across the street, then like why, why do people do that sort of thing? But just the point being that this starts to be more of an indicator that the habits or the pattern that this person is engaged with with that platform have become problematic. To kind of elaborate on that, or to kind of like just expound upon that, you've got this idea
1: that like, according to Mark D. Griffiths, which was a news article that kind of talked about this, this topic, you know, going back to those six questions from the addiction center. Okay. If you answer yes to all six, right. Cause you said most people are fine with this, but if you answer yes to all six, you might need a professional to weigh in. There might be something going on. If you answer yes to a few of those questions before it's likely just habitual. And maybe a detox program is needed or something kind of like just getting used to not being in it on as as much. So like things like turning off notifications, sounds like, you know, maybe do not disturb is is like has been really great for me. Setting check times or some on some fixed schedule. So when are you going to check? Maybe you establish some non-screen times during the day, or maybe you keep your phone in a separate room, whatever that looks like. There are a few things that you can do on your own that
0: that can help kind of maybe resolve some of the problems that you might be facing as a result of this. A number of the OSs now will come built in with software to set up for yourself rules about how much you use your phone and maybe even certain apps. I know that there are apps you can download that will, will monitor your use of other apps. And then if you reach a threshold that you can set, say like, I really want to try and reduce my use of social media to two hours a day or something then you can set that up on the app and then once you are starting to approach that threshold the app will just come up with a like a badge reminder thing or notification and say hey you're about to go over your goal consider putting your phone down or something like that and so those are some other things to potentially aid in that detox so we've talked about this a bit i think we need to cover how the social media addiction thing compares to other type of addictions specifically like substance type addictions and one of the ways that they're similar is that you see generally a kind of reclusive behavior where people will withdraw from the physical nearness of others which is not because of a pandemic ravaging the planet but (laughs) if you are doing this voluntarily because of your need and your consistent use of this platform where you you actually are spending more time online with people than you are in their presence and you sort of get this physical removal to only digital life again not because you're forced to do so then that is comparable to what other addictions start to look like
1: yeah and it's important to kind of note that addiction doesn't look like that stereotype of the basement dweller that's like jonesing for their next hit like it's not always like that like addiction can be something a little bit less overt so you'll see that it kind of like reclusive behaviors are really good indicator that there might be a challenge now there are physiological effects to social media too to consider When we talk about those physiological effects, we're talking about something that happens in your body, right? One thing that can happen is this neuronal firing, similar to gambling and recreational drugs.
0: So you'll see kind of like some of that happen within your, in the neurology of what's going on. The same sort of effect that you'd get from any type of immediate gratification or reinforcement. Essentially, you get that pleasure or fulfillment right away. Like as soon as, as part of interacting with that, that habit, you get that sort of pleasure.
1: So, as we mentioned earlier, some other things like immediate gratification, we talked about this being an unlimited type of currency, uh, and the platforms are designed to be easy and free. Those all contribute to making social media have this
0: like psycho or physiological effect on us. And that physiological effect, it starts to have a similar look to what drugs do when we look just at sort of what is happening in the brain. And I, I all caveats that we've mentioned a thousand times about how to consider the cause effect relationship here, but for some people who are engaging with the platform in a way that starts to look like addiction, when they get those retweets, those likes, people sharing their posts, that can actually trigger a similar surge of neurotransmitters, often dopamine, as you might expect to also see if they were, for example, snorting cocaine.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, for example, 10 minutes of social media can cause an oxytocin spike similar to those emitted on a wedding day. So that brief amount of time can actually cause a whole lot of good things happening in
0: in the body real quick. And according to the Chronicle, they list a quote here that 27% of children who spend three or more hours a day on social media exhibit symptoms of poor mental health, end quote. I mean, I'm not entirely sure what they're considering poor mental health here to make that sort of claim, but it would be a concerning number if it was a valid criteria. Right, absolutely.
1: So another thing that you'll see here is that the user, for lack of a better term, the person who's using the social media what you'll see is that they tend to move away from those things they used to find fun and enjoyable, and they'll start moving more towards where they're contacting more pleasurable events or more reinforcement, if you will. And so what they'll do is they'll start using these platforms a little bit more and avoiding things they used to do more often, right? So so maybe they're not going outside as much. Maybe they're not riding their bike as much because they're spending more time accessing some kind of social media from the comfort of their home. That goes back to that reclusive behavior, too. Like, So they have no tolerance for the things they used to like. They don't really care about the things they used to like. They really only care about where they're going to get that next hit.
0: Yeah, exactly. And thinking about how this might work and just sort of the, I don't know, cause and effect isn't exactly the word I want to use, but sort of how these factors are related to one another. Things like sharing a cup of coffee with somebody or reading a book or even like cleaning and just having sort of a clean house to live in. Those are things that are not inherently positive for us. We start to develop value for those things based on like having that be sort of reinforced by our culture, by people around us who maybe don't want to be in our house if it's weird. And so those become important through sort of a history of exposure to them and being built up culturally as being valuable. And what's really common, just as you pointed out, is with these other types of addictions, all those things that you that had become important that now undercuts those, and they're not intrinsically important anyway, and so they sort, they sort of lose that effectiveness that they once had. Now, things like that we don't have to learn as having value, such as sleep, food, drink, I'll just say pleasurable gratification and whatever form that might take, <laughs> those things will maintain their value because those are essentially biologically important to us. But all those other things that are sort of culturally valuable Those start to go away when they're being undercut by whatever the addiction thing is. And that's the same here we're talking about, the social media. So that's another way that they're similar. And you'll see this too from the addictioncenters.org, kind of when they talk about similarities to other addictions, what
1: they'll talk about is this idea of mood modification, where you'll see some favorable changes in some kind of an emotional state. Once that person contacts that reinforcer or whatever that thing is, like whatever that thing is that they're addicted to, once they contact it and they get that high from it, then their mood will change in a way that is more desirable for really everybody involved, but specifically for that person. They'll feel better when they contact that.
0: Totally. Another similarity that you might see to other addictions is that it's kind of obvious that you see their changes in their behavior, how they sort of get preoccupied with things, their shift away from things, a shift toward interaction with that platform or that whatever drug of choice, in this case, social media might be. It's fairly obvious to watch from the outset.
1: Yeah. Another thing too, you'll see is a development of tolerance. So you'll see that person kind of, as they get exposed to whatever that stimulus is or whatever that thing is, that's the gratifying piece, they will have to increase it, their use more and more and more as time goes on, kind of like chasing the dragon, right? (laughs) Yes. So like the first time is always really good, but then it's never going to be as good as that first time. So they have to continually do more to satisfy the need.
0: Which is related to this point of when it's taken away, then you can get these unpleasant side effects and this sort of withdrawal thing where, again, just it almost looks like depression in a way. You just nothing matters because the only thing that was important to you is no longer necessarily available. This is another where you can see that same sort of thing happening with excessive use of social media.
1: That can also lead to or, or contribute to this idea of conflict, right? Like, So you'll have some interpersonal relationships that become a problem. Maybe some challenges with close family members or friends or, or something along those lines can arise because maybe that person's getting in the way of use or maybe that relationship isn't as valuable as compared
0: to the use of whatever that social media is. And then, of course, the idea of relapse that if someone has been away from social media for a period of time, that if... Under the right circumstances, they might sort of fall back into the same pattern of behaviors as after that sort of abstinence period, and that would look like that relapse thing. So those are just some of the the things that are, are common with addiction. And then, of course, we mentioned the fact that you get at the neurological level, you might see what looks like similar brain chemistry happening, a rush of dopamine when you get to have those rewards hit how useful that is i think is potentially questionable but it's something that is at least observed and i think we can say has been observed i'm not i don't know if it's diagnostic or not but because i honestly i think anything that can function as a potential reward you're going to see a similar overall reaction to that and you have just have to look for other things to make a more complete sort of diagnosis if you will yep now there is a thought here that when we look at alcohol and drug use and we consider that To be particularly problematic when someone gets to the point that they are doing those dangerous things like driving under the influence or they're operating machinery while intoxicated, or if they're charged with taking care of vulnerable populations. What about the fact that we are on our phone all the time? And that can look similar to trying to use your phone when you're driving, when you are at work and you're supposed to be doing a job, when you're supposed to be taking care of your of somebody, potentially, you know, children or whatnot. This can be Equally reckless. And you can see people driving who veer into the wrong lanes, that they accidentally hit people, that they end up neglecting their things or people they're supposed to be caring for, or they fail to react appropriately to something that urgently needs their full attention. So, you know, I think it is worth keeping an eye on this. That being said, I think that this is a really good time to sort of break this conversation as part one. We'll come back for another part of this. I think this will be at least a two-parter. I don't know if we'll need three parts, but we might. But at least, I think, break it up there. And I just want to end with calling something an addiction is very complicated. We haven't actually done a full-blown episode in which we discussed what addiction is in a really thorough, objective, scientific manner. And so we can't pull from that to help guide a lot of this conversation. And so we're just going to sort of nest a lot of this inside of the fact that we can compare it to what other addiction looks like and what the features of that might be. And so I'm hesitant, honestly, to even say that habitual social media use meets all the same criteria as other addiction. And I also am hesitant to say that we should be dismissive of it because it certainly could impact people in serious ways. And I finally want to just close with the fact that I'm not trying to demonize social media at all. I think that social media has done a lot of really good things and that we don't just want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, as the saying goes, you know, that we have pay attention to sort of a complete picture and we're in a new territory right now trying to understand how this works psychologically, how it relates to things like other mental health disorders and conditions like addiction. And what other roles there is to play with the internet and social media so this is you know we're, we're trying to grapple with that and part of this is understanding the context and how it compares to things that we understand a little better
1: i want to add to you know this is certainly not to diminish people who are really dealing with like really intense addiction You know, addiction in itself is pretty complex, like you mentioned, and the challenges that go with getting better and healing from it, and and working towards recovering from it—it's unique and it's individual, and it's—it's incredibly complex. So, as we start talking about this, if it sounds like we're kind of. I don't want to say like being insensitive, maybe being insensitive. That's probably a way if we're, if we're being inadvertently insensitive to the idea of, of somebody having an addiction, that's not what we're trying to do. We know that it's very serious. We know that it's very intense. We know that people lose their lives from it or they end up in squalor because of it. And we know that it gets really bad. So that's not what we're trying to do at all. We're just trying to really paint a picture of what the social media addiction looks like and draw comparisons where we can. And and hopefully we can kind of better define this as we go forward.
0: That's a great point. I'm glad you said that. And I, I do want to make sure we do end by saying, like, I in no way want to say that I think that addicts are bad people or should be treated as immoral. This is just another place where people would benefit from additional support. Agreed. And potentially triage. <laughs> <laughs> if I can plug our episode. you're Right. <laughs> I think this is a good place, as I said, to sort of transition to do sort of our, our take home for the. Well, I think we actually really just hit did our take home. Instead, yeah, let's make a couple of recommendations, and then we'll you can join us back for part two. So let's go to recommendations. Recommendations. Shane, do you have a recommendation for us?
1: Yes, I do. So my recommendation for part one is an actor by the name of Jake Johnson. If you're not familiar with Jake Johnson's work, he was in The New Girl on TV. He was in a movie called Tag, which was a lot of fun. Paper Heart. He's been in a few different things. He's on the Hunters TV show I was telling you about. Oh yeah. No. And he's wonderful. And so I really, I really do enjoy his like comedic work, but what I really want to recommend right now is that he did this really great thing while everybody's being quarantined. And he basically set up an email that you could email him and tell him a little bit about your kid. And he would record a voiceover for your child using the voice of Peter B. Parker from Into the Spider-Verse. So he has been doing that where he's been doing individualized like voicemails for kids while he's stuck in his apartment or wherever he's at in New York. And he actually sent me one for Ethan for my son. Wow. And it was super sweet and super kind. It was like maybe like 30 seconds as a quick little snippet. And he sent it to me and it's great. So I just really appreciate people that kind of like do that out of the kindness of their heart. And, you know, when celebrities kind of reach out and they set stuff like that up, you never really hear from them or maybe you do. But this was like a really cool bit of kindness that he's doing for literally because he can because he's got the
0: time to do it. What an awesome human. I thought that was really neat. Way to go, Jake Johnson. Seriously. (laughs) We support you thanks jake johnson hashtag Jane johnson cool <laughs> i'm glad you went first because my mine is not nearly as important but thinking about people being stuck at home i have been thinking i would recommend a bunch of board games these are my favorite thing and so the one i'm going to recommend is called mystic veil and this is a deck builder do you know what that is jane i have no idea what that is i assume it's something like magic yes actually it, it has it, it in that it's a card game and that you start you acquire cards for your deck now magic is different because you go out and like buy cards and then you choose ones to add to your deck and your deck has a limit and all that sort of things most deck building card games are where in the game you essentially are going to try and acquire there's like a pool of cards and you'll try and buy strategically cards to add to your deck and then you'll try and get rid of less valuable cards out of your deck so that you have a deck that allows you to buy a lot of points or to be really effective at fighting monsters or what have you. Now, in Mystic Veil, they set up this really creative system where the cards are actually on transparencies and they're broken into thirds and you slip them inside of a little plastic sleeve so that the artwork and the effect of the card, you can have up to three cards in a single sleeve. And because they're transparencies, you can see all the different artworks. And then you can make it so the cards build off one another. And there's only 20 cards, there's only 20 sleeves in your deck to begin with, so you'll never, you'll always at least go through the same amount. You won't end up with this giant stack of cards, you never get to see the ones at the bottom that you've acquired. Right. Instead, this allows you to just sort of always have them. And the reason I'm actually recommending this in particular is for those people who have been playing board games virtually by setting up like cameras and looking at their table, you don't have to hide your hand. Everybody's hands are always visible. So like there's nothing like anybody can just sort of play if someone has the set. And the other reason is there's a a mobile app that's really good and you can set up online games to play with other people who have the mobile app and then you just play together and there's like a chat and or you could like FaceTime someone while you're playing or whatever and you can see the whole table set up on the mobile app and it's really cool and it's really well designed too. So that's my recommendation for playing games. If you want to do that, I like it. It's a really cool game too. It's what's one of my absolute favorites. That's awesome. I love that. Cool. All right. Well, let's wrap it up there. Thank you so much for recording with me today. Shane, thank you for listening. Please join us next time for our second part of social media addiction. We're going to talk more about some of the treatment possibilities, some other considerations for maybe who is responsible for dealing with addiction, as well as uh, some other features of what you might call addiction and that sort of thing. And if you would like to reach out to us and tell us about your social media addiction, please do so. You can reach us on social media while you're spending all your time there. You can also find us via email. Please consider rating and reviewing us wherever you listen to us and share this episode with a friend. And I think that is it. Do you have anything else, Shane? No, I think that's it. All right. This is Abraham. And this is Shane. We are out. See ya.
2: You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do why we do what we do is supported in part by our amazing patrons thank you if you like what you heard consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash wwd you can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends if you have any comments or questions we'd love to hear from you find us at wwd, WWD podcast on your favorite social media platforms you can learn more about this and other episodes
1: Neuro- neuronal. Neuronal? Neuronal? Neuronal. I like neuronal. Neuronal sounds good. Neuronal. 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 I like neuronal. Oh right. neuronal. neuronal sounds good.